Hello and welcome to the Anima Cafe podcast, a chance to hear the recording of our latest cafe, sharpening your skills around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. My name is Shaquille Chaudhry. My pronouns are he and him. I'm co-founder of Anima Leadership. I'd like to welcome you all today to, to today's our Anima Cafe. And uh, I'd like to first start by just acknowledging that uh, Anima Leadership is based here in Toronto. This is the traditional territories of uh, many Indigenous groups, including the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, uh, more recently, the Inuit and Métis peoples, and specifically, we recognize the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, and we honor their people, their ancestors, and spirits as stewards of this particular region. Uh, today, uh, the the name of the, the workshop uh, of our Anima Cafe is Inclusive Leadership for Polarizing Times, and I'm just delighted today to, uh, to welcome uh, Don Don Mankin, who is a uh, who is an author of some amazing books, and the one we're going to talk about today is facilitating a more perfect union: a guide for politicians and leaders. Now, this tiny little 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 book, but wow, it's amazing, uh, and you're going to find out why. Uh, Don is a psychotherapist. Um, uh, Don has uh, is one of the co-founders of the Process Work Institute, based in Portland, Oregon. And um, and has also been a teacher for me uh, through the work that's been done through process work, but also through our conversations, uh, through your writing. And I've taken webinars with you as well, Don. And I'm just so delighted that you could join us. So please say hello and introduce yourself. Mm, good afternoon. Good morning, everybody. You're the first people I'm talking to today. I'm in Portland, Oregon. It's 9 a.m. I usually don't talk this early in the morning. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. And I want to thank Shaquille for inviting me. And I want to thank uh, Shaquille and Anahid. She must be here somewhere, although I'm not seeing her, for your wonderful work and visioning of the Anima Institute, the whole idea of Anima as soul and as leaders that we come from the inside out is so essential. And I love the courage you have in naming that as your institute. And I know you walk that in the world and do so much good. So I'm grateful to be here. And thanks to James and Lillian in the background for their tech work. And I'm all excited to jump in on things. I don't want to spend too much time saying more on me, Shaquille. Okay, thanks, Don. So we're gonna have a bit of a conversation, folks. In the last fifteen minutes, we'll have Q and A. So uh, here's here's the context. Obviously, uh, we are at a time in which uh, in which there is increasing polarization. Uh, democracy itself is being threatened across uh, the Western world. Uh, the tone is really being set in the U.S. And, and we're seeing the impacts of that with the far right emerging. Uh, we're seeing this in the context of climate crisis. We're seeing this in the context of, of, uh, uh, of the cost of living and people getting more desperate and just there's, there's multiple tensions. And, you know, uh, there might've been a time uh, 
uh, where, you know, 30, 40 years ago, where, you know, the workplace was such that when things happen out in the, in the external world, often the workplace was kind of insulated. We didn't have to talk about it. We didn't have the social media context in which to respond. But now leaders are in a context where world events come pushing into the workplace uh, in a way that I think they always did psychologically, but we didn't really talk about it. It was like, leave, things stop at the door, come in and just do your work. Well, that's just not the reality today. Um, and so there's a there's a way in which, uh, you know, workplace leaders are having to deal with a lot more, a lot more things that they're not necessarily prepared to, to talk about and, or skilled to talk about. And that's, and in the, our work is around inclusion. And so, um, why I'm excited about your book is I think that, um, again, uh, uh, although it's, uh, the subtitle here is a guide for politicians and leaders, um, I'm going to bring some attention to this because this is tied to, to nurturing inclusion, especially in deeply polarizing times where turbulence is, is, um, uh, is, is just a part of what we are doing. You know, if people, uh, just even go back the last, last few years, COVID hits, uh, the murder of George Floyd. Um, more recently, we're in a context in which um, uh, uh, Israel and Palestine, uh, all of these are forces that are showing up in different ways that workplaces aren't always prepared to deal with. So I'm delighted for you to be here. And I'd love for you to, first of all, tell us what prompted you to even write this book? And then we'll get into some of the content of it and what it how it ties to the workplace. Well, it's kind of a funny reason, friends. I found myself screaming at my television. I watch the news, and I'm sure I'm not alone. And I look at these people speaking about world issues and our politics, and I get so frustrated. Anyone else with me there? You get frustrated? Let me see a wiggle if you are. Yeah. So I, I noticed I was coaching them from my couch. That's what happened. I, my family had to deal with me screaming stuff all the time. And um, from that, I realized, I guess I have something to say. And uh, it actually began with a course I did uh, for international leaders. Shaquille, I think that's where you were a part of that class too. And then uh, I brought out some of my ideas and I, uh, I decided to write a book from that. So the book is really mostly geared towards political speech and public speech. Um, it also has a lot to do, what do you do when you're a leader and you're under attack? Um, I don't know if we're going to say much about that today, but I want to mention that because that's a huge issue as well. And it's also polarizing how leaders deal with attack and see the different attacks in their environment, because there's different kinds of attackers. Anyway, the book is short, like Shaquille says, and um, there's tons of examples. I imagine myself as a political speechwriter. And indeed, I've had some people who said to me, Dawn, why don't you run for office? But I, I would hate that. I'm not a policy person, but I do enjoy coaching and supporting leaders. And I hope to at least make a contribution in our discourse. And I also want to contextualize that you, you're not just mm -hmm. someone uh, who is, you know, a armchair quarterback uh, <laughs> talking to the TV. You're someone who has... Um, uh, three plus decades of experience on intergroup conflict. Uh, 
Yes. And it's one of the reasons that uh, I was drawn to your work and the work of the process uh, of Process Work Institute, because, because there's a way in which uh, you folks have psychologically stepped into both individual, interpersonal, and group conflict. And so I think there's a lot of wisdom that shows up here. So so let's let's get into it because um, I think that, you know, um, uh, just give us a sense of uh, a little bit of what the book's about, because I think what the book is about is going to help us enter this conversation a little more clearly. Well, one of the first things that I want to talk about, and I think other people understand this as well, how do you have your own viewpoint and include others? It's really fundamental. And uh, with politics, this is especially potent because politicians are told that they must have a platform. You have to have a platform. You have to have a platform to raise money, to get constituents. And built into that system is a one-sided viewpoint. And it's paradoxical because you're meant to lead a whole country or city. Isn't that strange? Think about it. You have to govern everyone and yet you're pressed into this narrow platform. So also in talking to political leaders, a couple of people who are friends of mine, you know, they asked, how do you do it, Dawn? How can you really bring that across? And it's not easy. And uh, take the issue, for example, of gay marriage. It's an interesting one to talk about because if you might reflect back on uh, Bill Clinton who created in the United States the Defense of Marriage Act. And if you think of Obama, who at the beginning of his presidency was against gay marriage, and then later with a nudge from Joe Biden, he evolved. Let's think about that together. Do you really feel in your heart of hearts that Bill Clinton and Barack Obama were against gay marriage? Think about that. My view is I think they've always been for it. I really do. I think they couldn't be for it. They couldn't put that on their platform. So how do you do it? How can you have a platform that's inclusive? So if I were one of those men, I would have given a speech that says something like, you know, in my heart of hearts, I believe in love for all. We all have friends, we have family, the basic premises of our country are about equality and freedom. And we celebrate love. Every religion celebrates love. And yet we are divided as a country. We have strong viewpoints. We have religious viewpoints. We feel those of us who have not had same-sex love relationships could never understand what that might be like. So we're trying to legislate it away. For me, I want to be a president that can encourage dialogue on that issue. And that's what my platform would be. You get what I'm saying here? You're somehow, it's, it's kind of a mushy area where you can stand for something, but the larger thing that you're standing for, particularly in, an, in a situation where you are the leader, is that you are standing for facilitating a dialogue. And I think that's really important. Now, um, I love that, Don. I want to also contextualize this for our people because everyone's dialing in here and, and most people are dialing in from a workplace context. Yep. So we're actually going to talk about leadership on a broader level because I think sometimes it's easier to talk about when things are further distance from us. And then we're going to bring it down to a micro level because when we're managers, when we're leaders, we're having to lead very diverse teams. 
of different yeah. backgrounds and different opinions, uh, opinions. And so how do we do that on a micro level? We're going to start on a macro level first. And so one of the things that, um, you've talked about in your book and I know you've done, um, in your, uh, in your work is, is you've talked about a very famous, uh, speech that, uh, that Barack Obama gave in 2008, which was around mm -hmm. issue of race and racism. Okay. Now, um, we've got that two minute clip. We're going to show you just a two minute clip. It was like a 45 and it was a one hour conversation, but there's a little segment that we're going to use as an example. And we want to share it with you so you can all watch this. Um, because I know Don, you talk about it as like, this is a really good example of someone who's able to move from one position to another one polarity to the other polarity. So is that okay if we show that little clip first so everyone's kind of on the same page as an example of what this, as in another example of what this might look like in real time? Yeah, are we good with that, Don? Okay, cool. I'm good with it. And I want to say, I want to plug that speech. If you ever have the time or you're going for a walk and you're needing to listen to something, it's an inspiring speech. And after that speech, David Axelrod, who was his main strategist, called him up. He, he, he wrote the speech, Barack Obama, and he sent it. He was up all night and he sent it to Axelrod. Axelrod texted him back and said, this is why you should be president. So, yes, show that couple minutes, Shaquille. All right. So so just context wise, wise started, James. Mm -hmm. um, th yeah. So this the, the controversy is, is that um, uh uh, the controversy is, is that um, Reverend Wright, Reverend Wright, his pastor, uh, has made some very inflammatory comments, comments that would be very common on the left hand side of the political spectrum. But really, uh, Reverend Wright got attacked. Um, and this is the church that that Barack Obama belongs to. And um, it, he said things like goddamn America and, you know, uh, some of the things around that have happened because the U.S. has caused these situations. He just said a number of things that on the left-hand side of the political, political spectrum might not raise any eyebrows, but uh, in the center and on the right, it blew up, especially during a campaign. So he's having to address um, this issue of why this Black pastor of this Black church um, and... Um, uh, the whole thing is he should denounce him is basically what the message was. Anything you want to add to context wise, um, Don, that I'm missing that would be helpful for people? No, it's perfect, except it was that he was going to lose his candidacy. His, that was like the biggest issue. It was so strong. Right. No. Yes. Great. Thank you. OK, James, hit hit play and let's let's just watch a couple minutes of this. Okay. Which contains in full the kindness and cruelty the fierce intelligence and the shocking ignorance. One second, he's, he's talking about the church. Yeah, pause that, James. I just want, I want people to know what he's talking about there because we caught him mid-sentence. He's saying the church includes everything, love, cruelty, bias, raucous expression. That's what he's speaking about. That's important. Go ahead. Thanks, James. And yes, the bitterness and biases that make up the black experience in America. And this helps explain perhaps my relationship with Reverend Wright. As imperfect as he may be, he has been like family to me. He strengthens my faith. 
officiated my wedding and baptized my children. Not once in my conversations with him have I heard him talk about any ethnic group in derogatory terms or treat whites with whom he interacted with anything but courtesy and respect. He contains within him the contradictions, the good and the bad, of the community that he has served diligently for so many years. I can no more disown him than I can disown the black community. I can no more disown him than I can disown my white grandmother, a woman who helped raise me, a woman who sacrificed again and again for me, a woman who loves me as much as she loves anything in this world, but a woman who once confessed her fear of black men who passed her by on the street and who on more than one occasion has uttered racial or ethnic stereotypes that made me cringe. These people are part of me and they are part of America, this country that I love. Now some will see this as an attempt to justify or excuse comments that are simply inexcusable. I can assure you it is not. And I suppose the politically safe thing to do would be to move on from this episode and just hope that it fades into the woodwork. We can dismiss Reverend Wright as a crank or a demagogue, just as some have dismissed Geraldine Ferraro in the aftermath of her recent statements as harboring some deep-seated bias. But race is an issue that I believe this nation cannot afford to ignore right now. We would be making the same mistake that Reverend Wright made in his offending sermons about America. To simplify and stereotype and amplify the negative to the point that it distorts reality. The fact is that the comments that have been made and the issues that have surfaced over the last few weeks reflect the complexities of race in this country that we've never really worked through. A part of our union that we have not yet made perfect. And if we walk away now, if we simply retreat into our respective corners, we will never be able to come together and solve challenges like health care or education or the need to find... Sorry, that was the point at which it ended. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. Is that, good is that good enough to deconstruct, uh, Don, a little bit about what you thought is happening there around this idea of, of polarities? Yes, I miss him, Shaquille. When I hear his voice, I miss him. Yeah. Ah, what a, he, he's one of the best speakers. Yeah. What do you want to say something, Shaquille, about that? Because, you know, I think you I were think excited about it, too. So I want to invite you. Oh, uh, thanks. I mean, um, you know, in, in this, I just saw his ability when we're talking, I'll just talk about polarities. The idea of polarity is that, you know, your ability, both psychologically and emotionally to go from one perspective to the other perspective. That's, that's what I see, but the other perspective and to do it authentically. And I just really saw him do it in that kind of way. So that's what I would offer as a start. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily agree with these polls. Uh, with these opposites, but you're willing to name them and play with them. So that would be my starting point. What about you, Don? You know, one of the most profound things that he did, that he was perfectly positioned to do because of his background of having a Kenyan father, 
and a white mom from Kansas was to say it is all inside of him. He is America. He is everything. He is the Reverend Wright. He is the black man, particularly. He, he also speaks later in this speech about what it's like to be Reverend Wright and why would such a man uh, have so much fury and anger and righteousness and you know what's that like to grow up in the U.S. South during the Jim Crow years. He also sheds light on what that is like. And he says that that is inside of him. And then he speaks about his white grandmother and her views, that is also a part of him. So fundamentally, as a leader, to be able to somehow connect to both positions internally is very powerful. That's the first thing I'd say. You want to say more, Shaquille? Um. You know, I think uh, he, he then takes it and he speaks about it in the larger context. Like, this is America, right? Yeah. Like, we are imperfect. We are uh, we are not ready. Uh, like, this is a part that we're still working on. And so there's a way in which there's a reality of, like, this is where we are. This is unfinished business and we have work to do. And there's yeah. a way in which... Without saying I'm facilitating this conversation between these opposites, he's actually modeling it. Exactly. Thank you. I so much appreciate that. Another very subtle thing he, he does that I think we all can learn from is he says, there will be people who will want to condemn me. There'll be people who will say that what I'm doing is politically safe that I should just move on, I should dismiss him. This whole idea when you're a leader and or a public speaker to bring in the viewpoint of what is already, of what is out there. The reason to do that is you address the so-called ghosts that are in your environment. So they're not just quiet sitting on the sidelines, but you're addressing them. He says, yeah, people are gonna wanna dismiss me. They're going to think I'm too politically safe. And then he can answer that. And he can say, it's too simplistic, that reality. We can't just retreat into our respective silos, but we have to come together. And that's a really brilliant thing to do. And by the way, Michelle Obama does that as well. If you look at some of her speeches, there was one where she said, yeah, people might dismiss my comments because I'm a black woman. She's masterful at that. But I know that you guys all know me, she says in one of her speeches at the Democratic Convention. She says, but I know you know me as someone who cares about all of your children. Mm. So she brings in what she imagines and, and well, not only imagines, she has experienced outwardly and then she can address it. And that's a very important skill. And Obama does it brilliantly. And I think part of what's happening there too is, um, it's not just like, so there's a real skill in bringing in those voices that are the opposite of what you believe uh, respectfully and authentically. He's not mocking it, which is so important, yeah. right? So he's actually bringing in the voices and the concerns, but he's also naming his own fears, right? Like yeah. he's like, even though he's very composed, the the, the meta skill that we want you to think about as, as leaders is can you name your fear? Can you name the 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 what you fear the critics are saying about you? 
what you fear that um, those that are opposing you in this decision, what they might say in your workplace context. Um, and you address it. And if you do that respectfully, you're actually doing what Dawn talks about, which is facilitating. You're doing it without saying, I'm going to facilitate this conversation, although sometimes you have to be that explicit. But in being able to go from here to here, from one side to the other, you're you're actually facilitating a conversation that's happening um, between these different voices that are happening. But you're you're use you're using yourself and not using yourself in, in a self-aggrandizing way. You're not using yourself to say I know everything. You're saying doing it in a very respectful way. That that I think um, if you can name it, um, but it requires a lot of inner work. So maybe maybe that might be an entry point, Don, to kind of say maybe we can start talking a little bit about um, what do you see as uh, I know there's a lot of skills that go underneath here, but maybe you can identify two or three or four, whatever you think, a handful of, of skills that people need to develop, um, things they need to think about or strategies they might want to think about as they as they are imagining themselves, not as a president, although there may be people who are heads of organizations here, um, mm -hmm. which is also very, very real. Um, there are people with executive, uh, executive roles here. So you are in charge of a large um, uh, entity. Um, but what what's what do they need to consider? What do people what should people be thinking about? What's the skills that they're that we're watching in action? And we're talking about them a little bit, but I'd love for you to add a little bit of that into the sure, sure. Thanks, Shaquille. I also just see some of the chat. Uh, Anahi, thanks for your your comment about de-escalation and acknowledging folks so they're more open to shifting. Appreciate that. Um yeah, so what kinds of skills? I think the most difficult thing is, um, let's name this idea, how we how we were just talking about people, the leader or the speaker, bringing in the other viewpoint in their speech. It's a really hard thing to do. Think about some of your most intractable conflicts with those closest to you. Gosh, sometimes those are the hardest people to really see their position. Um, how can we do that? How can we go deeper than just a viewpoint? It's fundamental. Um, even things, um, you'll, you'll see, if, if you do read my book, you're gonna see a whole section that um, around the march in Charlottesville. Do you guys remember that or uh, a white nationalist march in Charlottesville? In fact, it was the reason uh, Joe Biden said he ran for president. It was very disturbing to watch that. And I was longing for someone who could not just condemn it. Yes, condemn it. Yes. Hear my passion for the one sidedness. But how can you facilitate it? And you'll see in my book that I give a speech that feels into what it is like. I really had to press myself here. And I want to encourage you all to do this if you can. Of course, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but even a viewpoint that is absolutely abhorrent to you, which obviously that Charlottesville scene is abhorrent. It's repulsive and awful. But how, how can we facilitate that? So I really challenge myself. This is the inner work involved. What do these people feel? What is it like to have grown up 
with the history as a, as a white person of the Civil War, to have your family uh, fought for the Confederate side? What was it like to have paraphernalia in your home? Um, what is it like if you're the... Uh, if, if you're the relative of Robert E. Lee, one of the big generals, you know, that march came about because the uh, uh, Virginia decided to pull a statue of Robert E. Lee down. So what is it like? You know, that's a really hard thing. So it, in my book, I give a sample speech of what I would say. And I talk to that spirit, the desire for family, the desire and complicated feeling of being on the wrong side of history and having people condemn you, but at the same time, wanting to be proud of your lineage and to love your family. It's fundamental. And deep down, it's the desire somehow to belong. And these people do not feel like they belong these days. So how to speak to that? I'm not gonna say more about the speech. It would take too long, but do you get my idea about feeling into the other side? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, as a leader, I want to say here, and this is a very subtle thing or a, a public speaker. Are there other people here? Give me a little indication if you're someone who also um, teaches, speaks in public, facilitates groups. Are you someone like that? Yeah, many of us are. Do you ever have the feeling like um, you're nervous? Anyone ever feel nervous to do that? Mm-hmm. Why are we nervous? Why do we, why do we freeze? And there's a couple things to think about. One is that we freeze because there is someone outwardly, there's a viewpoint outside of us that we feel is somehow gonna be against us. That's one reason. And the second reason has more to do perhaps with personal psychology around, you know, inner confidence, but also I want to mention this because it's so important. Internalized social oppression is a big thing that makes people freeze. And uh, if, if you've grown up in a marginalized group, if your voice hasn't been heard, um, that is also part of, of your inner work. But this whole idea of preparing yourself for those situations um, by naming what is inside of you, what is the viewpoint that you feel you're going to meet that might be critical of you or put you down? So I just thought I'd give you this kind of fun, easy example. Um, some years back, I wrote a, a parenting book. You can see it in my background, Raising Parents, Raising Kids. It was a, a, a beautiful book for me to write. I enjoyed it, writing it a lot as I've enjoyed being a parent. But uh, I, be I was going to give beginning to give uh, public talks about that book. And I realized I was so nervous. And in general, I'm not someone who gets really nervous around things, but I was really nervous. And I thought, what is out there? What am I so scared of? And um, I realized that there's an expert out there. I imagined... The experts, well, well, Dawn, what do you have to say about parenting? What is the latest expert advice? Can you imagine that kind of role? And at the same time, there's the desperate parent. I've worked with enough parents over the years who come to me desperate. Give me advice. Aren't you the expert? Tell me what to do, right? 
the same time, it's very, very complicated working with parents. By the way, how many people here are parents? We have parents here? Yeah, a lot of parents here. I want to tell you something. If you're talking about parenting with your therapist or coaches, parenting is an extremely intimate issue for people to talk about. It is just as intimate as sex and money. People are very, very defensive about their parenting, that people need a lot of support. They feel that they're going to be criticized for doing something wrong. They feel their own parents are going to criticize them. It's a very, very sensitive issue. So the parents are looking for an expert, and yet they fear the role of the expert because they feel they're going to, they're going to feel badly about what they are doing. Can you get that dynamic? That's what I was so nervous about. So what I came to in my own inner work and how I began those readings was to welcome the experts. Instead of having them be autonomous spirits in my environment that might pop up, pop up and put me down or, or be a defensive parent and say, that's not gonna work or something like that. I invited the experts in and I did that by saying that every parent is an expert. And that's important, my work with parents over the years. Parents need to also believe in and trust their own inner wisdom and expertise and their instincts. Now, I didn't ignore the expert in myself. I said, yeah, I've got some experience. I'm looking forward to sharing what I know. And you all know things, and I want to invite you into the conversation. So after I came to that, friends, and myself, I was much more relaxed and able to have a good time with those readings. So wanted to give you an example there of, of really working on yourself before, picking up the other, the other viewpoint or something. Sometimes it's very atmospheric. It's a feeling thing, and you have to go deeply in yourself to find out what it is. So that's one of the biggest skills. Finding the other, going deeply into it and addressing it in your speaking and inviting that viewpoint in. Does that make sense for everybody? Yeah. I want to also mention something around social identity. I mean, there's so much to, to, to say. I don't know where to put my emphasis, but I do want to mention something about social identity. Um, all of us as leaders and people, we are... We are learning more uh, about our social selves and how to articulate that. And we all know that how we are perceived is not just our individual person, but we will also be perceived based on our age, our race, our gender, uh, our ethnicity, et cetera. If we're in a wheelchair and things you can't see, perhaps like sexual orientation, class issues, all that stuff, you guys know about that. And um, knowing your social identity and addressing it is really important. So just like in the workplace, I, I had this recent experience I wanted to share with you. I was working in Europe in the fall and at this one workshop I did, um, I'm not going to name the city because of confidentiality, but on this one workshop I did, uh, a white woman said to me, I have to facilitate uh, this, this racially mixed group of people. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid. 
Now that's a really common thing for people to feel nervous about their social identity, nervous about their impact. In this case, it's a white person. Um, she's in a more racially dominant position. And um, I, my advice to her, and I wanna give this advice to you guys as well, is just say it outright, to say something like, yes, I'm a white woman, I'm raised in a particular culture, um, I have a limited lens, I'm sure. And I want to invite others to balance my viewpoint. I want to, I want to hear your perspectives from all different walks of life. That's something you can do in the dominant position. Now let's, let's, let's reverse it. Same woman at that workshop, a black woman, well, not the same woman, same workshop, a woman, a black woman who's a DEI facilitator she was facilitating a group of 15 uh, white male firefighters, black women, 15 white male firefighters. Um, they were obligated to go to the DEI training and um, they didn't see any use to that training. Um, uh, you know, they didn't want to be there. And uh, the atmosphere was terrible for her. And I've been in that situation as a woman where the guys begin to look you up and down. It's it's terribly denigrating. So she was having that experience. And um, I supported her to do something like this, um, to say to her, to say to the group, to really be upfront about it, to say, you know, I'm here to give this training and I'm aware that you don't wanna be here. And on top of that, I'm a woman in a male dominated profession and I'm a black woman and in a country where most of you, I think, don't have as much connection with Black folks. And I can clearly imagine your thoughts, the ones you're thinking and you're not saying. And I want to present them so they don't act like ghosts that haunt our atmosphere. And then I encouraged her to actually stand up and present that as a role, not from the position of her, uh, her leadership chair. That's really important. Whenever you're representing a role in a group, don't say it from your leadership position because you get identified with it, but to step out in the room and say, I think this is what you might be thinking. And I advised her to say something like this. Yeah, what can a woman offer us? She doesn't know what we deal with. Women are too weak. We have a brotherhood here. We don't even know enough about black people. She's not gonna understand our experience. DEI work is weak. It doesn't apply to us. So I encouraged her to bring out that role and then bring in a response. And the response, again, to take an, maybe an opposite position spatially in the room and to say something like this. All right, yes, I wanna respond. You all notice I'm a black woman. And you, what you don't see is that I am very strong. I might not have as much muscle, although I'm not too shabby, making a little joke of it. Not too shabby. I don't have as much muscle as you guys. But what I have endured in life has created a formidable, powerful strength. And I am here to support you men to get stronger, not only in your power, your powerful physical strength, you got that, but in the strength of your awareness. And the training that I'm going to do is going to help you with people skills. 
So when you approach a Muslim family and you have to rescue a woman, that when you put your hands on her to carry her out, you know how to relate to that family. I want to inform you around your awareness. And I want I don't want to disrupt your brotherhood. I want to support it. So it can also include black and brown people and also women. And I think your brotherhood is strong enough to hold that. So that was my uh, coaching advice to her. But uh, challenging situation, how to show both of those polarities and how to work with your social identity is a very common thing, Shaquille, that I am seeing now in the office space. Right. Thanks, Don. So there's a lot in there. You said a lot. And I want to I want to try to summarize this. And what I want to also want to do is bring it into a context where um, some of us might right now, even hearing those stories, feel overwhelmed. Uh -huh. so I want to bring like the overwhelm into the space because like, oh, damn, I can't do that. And already, yes, you can. OK, I know Practice. what I want. Prepare what I want before. Yeah. What I want to do, though, is I also want to acknowledge that, you know, the stories you've just told. Um, like even the the very first one you talked about where where you said, you know, I had to go into the space of what it means to be um, someone who would be at the Charlottetown, um, uh, Charlottesville uh, uh, white nationalist march. Right. Yes. A lot of us can't do that. And I also want to put in here that 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 for like to your ability to do that and to do it as fluidly as you did is also speaks to your own experience base. But what I want to also offer is that is that some of us are not going to be ready to go that far. So what I what I would encourage, and maybe you can add some input into this too, is that is that if you get to the part inside your psyche where you're trying to imagine something like a white nationalist and what their perspective is, and you just can't do it, then it might mean that you're not quite ready for that conversation yet. So let's scale back because remember, everything exists on a gradation. Right. Um, maybe it's not someone who's a white nationalist. Maybe it's someone who's more like a conservative that is less confused. What would I say to that person? So the principle we use at Anima, stretch but don't tear. Like sometimes we're not ready to go that far emotionally, psychologically, and that's okay. And and I also want to put that out there because sometimes we we go, oh, I'm supposed to do that, and we overwhelm ourselves and the whole process sort of disintegrates because we tried to chew off more than we can emotionally and psychologically. So one, I just want to invite people to start thinking about the example is, is great, but maybe we can't quite do that yet. So what are the smaller steps you can take that echo an eventual bigger step at some point, right? Uh, maybe you can't make friends with Trump right now and imagine what's going on for his psyche yeah. from, a, from, a, from an empathetic place. That's okay. So don't try to do that. Build yourself up to who, who along that gradient could I try to relate to? Um, in your workplace, that's also really important too, that you're, you're thinking about what can I manage and what can I stretch myself into without tearing? Um, the, the other part um, that I would say too is for some of us, to try to access those voices on our own is really hard. And again, Don, you've got a lot of fluidity. You and I have got a lot of different practices and processes we've developed over the years. One of the things that I've found is that the ability to kind of go, oh, what's even my fear? For some of us, naming our own fears is hard. But what can be helpful 
is to be in conversation with other trusted people to say, hey, I'm kind of stuck in this situation. And I'm, can you help me identify some of the things that are might be my polarity? Like, I feel like I'm really strong identifying what this part is. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really good with, with like what I want, but I'm really having a hard time articulating what the other side is. And some of us are the opposite. Some of us are like, we're really good at like empathizing with other people, but not clear what we want in that process. So the polarity we have is not being able to name our own needs. So what I want to invite in this conversation is a little bit of like, stay within what you can do and bring others to help you identify what some of those fears might be. Because some of us, our loved ones and our colleagues and people we trust can see what our fears are sometimes more clearly than we can ourselves. So I want to invite this idea of like, the baby steps we need to get to something that might be more profound, but we want to, the only way we can take thing that's really big and grand is to break it down to bite-sized chunks. So do what you can within the space that you can and get the support you need to help identify this rather than like Don and Shaquille told us to do this. And I tried it and it was a complete disaster <laughs> because I just got triggered and flooded and overwhelmed and I couldn't do any of it, but maybe you can do a little piece of it. Is that, is that, can you add to that, Don? Yeah, I want to thank you for balancing me, Shaquille. <laughs> that uh, it's true. I have, you know, I'm so disturbed that I want to challenge myself to go into those extreme experiences that I see to find a way to get through. Um, but yes, it does. It, it takes practice. It takes inner work, and I really like how you bring in uh, the support. Actually, uh, that we seek support from colleagues and loved ones who can help us. And you know, when we were talking on our little chat before Shaquille, I also wanted to remind people you you were talking about baby steps and stretch goals, and I just wanted to remind people also of what we do do in the world already and to feel well and proud about ourselves. For example, every time you have a conflict with someone, your partner, a family member, a friend, and you remain curious about their viewpoint and you try to draw them out, you model something for your children, you do something for the world, you do something for your kids, whenever you're in leadership and you do a simple thing, which is to use your power to uplift others, or you help to change the culture of business life by being more inclusive, that's a huge thing. Thank you for that. If you can facilitate conversations in diverse groups, and I hear that the Anima Institute does brave conversations and you're able to facilitate and you're able to bring out viewpoints that don't have a platform to speak, both for marginalized and more dominant positions, man, you're doing great work and you're living in a world that I personally would like to live in. And I don't want to forget the parents. Everyone here who is a parent and who nurtures their child's inner life, everybody here who works on playground issues, and begins early on with conflict work with your kids, you do great stuff. When you help your kids to interact with authority, huge issue. Most of the people I have to say in my practice have horror stories of schools and authorities. It was very important for me with my son 
to help him to bring in his viewpoints with even his principal when he had a little thing happen there, to facilitate those conversations. And also just in community life, I had to facilitate a whole thing that happened around race issues on one of my son's basketball teams that involved the community in a much larger group. So we have opportunities and you have them like I've had them. And I want us to feel that those are also baby steps that you're already doing or grand steps, actually. Yeah, that's great. Now, I, mm. uh, thank you, Don. I know we're also running short on time. So here's what I'd like yeah. to do. I'd like to bring in our audience, uh, our wonderful people who've been listening as part of the community um, into the process. So the first thing is uh, I want to hear, like, what are you taking from this? What's helpful so far? That helps us know what's kind of landing. And then we'll also get to the second part, which I'll ask in a moment too. So I've written the chat, what's helpful so far? What are you What are you taking from what you've heard um, that you can apply to your own life, your own uh, personal life or professional life? Write something in the chat and we'll also take one or two voices. So first, just write something in the chat. Don't hit return yet. Just take a moment, digest what you've heard. What's been helpful? Don't hit return yet. Just Take a moment, there's no rush. Maybe put a few words. What's useful so far? What's an idea that's caught your attention? And you can write something into chat. Um, if you can't just pause on hitting return yet because everyone writes at a slightly different speed. And then we'll also take one or two comments and then we'll also shift to questions too. Okay. And hit return whenever you're ready. Okay. Great. Mm. Wow. Lots of great stuff coming through, exploring my own fear, naming fear. Um, that's a big one that's coming up for folks. Uh, the reminder of, of, of being present, doing your own work, be prepared to stretch your own point of view, having your own point of view. Um, uh, giving space, bringing in the ghosts. Clearly some people are very familiar with some of the process work language too. Uh, stand for facilitating a dialogue, mm -hmm. naming social identity, the strengths and weaknesses that comes with it. And again, to do that is a lot of work. That's inner work to be able to say, hey, look, here's what I think, as Don so beautifully um, illustrated, here's what what might be out there and here's what's also true, that that's a deep act of vulnerability. Like all of this work that we're talking about requires deep vulnerability. So remember, when you're, being vulnerable about something, share the pieces that you feel okay enough that if they get mishandled or misquestioned, isn't gonna like activate you, right? So sometimes we share, sometimes what we're not quite ready to share. And then someone asks an awkward question or touches it the wrong way. And suddenly we kind of collapse or get triggered. So again, I always encourage you to stretch, but don't tear. That's one of the big principles. Oh. Even when you tell your story, the part of your vulnerability, are you okay if someone misunderstands it and touches it in a slightly awkward way? So again, it's just another way of playing with both identity 
but what your what your vulnerabilities are in a way that is respectful to you, which is why boundary setting is so important in this work, mm-hmm. right? Um, just because Don can do it doesn't mean I can do it. Yes, you can, and others can. Yes, Sorry we can. To respectfully disagree. Right, but it's stretching to get there too. Yeah. Right, as opposed to I'm going to do exactly what is Don did, did right now and overwhelm myself. Right, <laughs> that that's the part that can get tricky. Right. So, yes, we can do it. It's a yes. And it's not a no. It's saying stretch yourself into those positions. So this is where Don and I are in conversation live with you folks right now about what we're seeing and and even potentially disagreeing on. OK, let's take, let's take some other things, which is also um, uh, uh, like what are questions or issues that you have? We're not going to be able to address all of them right now. In fact, we'll hardly get to any of them. We're almost about to wrap up. But what are other issues here that you think might be um that you'd like to clarify. I saw some questions coming up, but take a moment. Is there anything you want to raise um, in the space? Because there's a lot here. Shaquille, if I can, um, one of the the comments that came out that I thought was really a good one to address, this is Anahid, by the way. Um, Hello, Dawn. Hi, Anahid. Hi. Actually, I don't know. I can just put my camera on. I can't see you. Oh, there you are. I know, I know I'm shrouded in this. Actually, Your beautiful head. face. I feel you. Oh, around my, my head. Um, is that idea of how do I hold space to address different perspectives and feelings in the room when there's an expectation that I need to uphold a very particular position to protect minoritized people in the organization? So if you could say something about that because I think that's a real fear for a lot of people in organizational contexts. Invite the people who are in the minority to speak, but speak to the larger container that we don't get anywhere. We we maintain the polarization if we also can't hear both sides. And a lot of what a facilitator does, and I think you do this on the heat because I've I've read your books and your examples too is the ability to hold a container. As a facilitator, we are creating a container. Maybe, you know, a Shaquille, when you also speak about the baby steps, the only reason why you can do such extravagant things sometimes is because you create a container. And part of that is educating your group. You must say to a group, we're all hopeless. We can't go any further. I Who can, who can be here for the impossible? Who's going to hold our world? Who can hold us? It's so crucial. And there will be strong reactions, value the strong reaction, but then also bring in the other position. You know, Anheed, you remind me of uh, working in in, uh, schools where it's kind of a similar situation, like kids and teenagers are not as polite, by the way, if you don't know that already. Like in schools, they'll say terrible things about each other. They'll say that group of people, they're this, okay? So you might think it's a very similar situation. You think, okay, as the teacher, you have to respect those people who've just been downed, right? You have to make them feel safe. But what a complicated situation because you're in a power role. You as the teacher facilitator are much more powerful than those students, So how do you come in and facilitate that situation 
not by only putting that voice down. What I've learned is over the years is I say, wow, that's a strong comment, dude. Okay, powerful. Good for you for saying the unspeakable. And I know there's another position in the room who can speak to it. And then you bring in that group or those voices. It might not even come from those that particular group who was targeted, right? It might come from other people. And if no one can do that, then you might say, if there is someone on the other side, whoops, are we cut off now? No, no, you can okay. finish. And if there is someone, if, if someone can't do it, I would do it as a facilitator. I'd say a voice that can't speak now says, but wait a minute, you don't know enough about difference, my friend. Our group is not just lazy, good for nothing group. And then I would do an exercise around, every, around everyone thinking about where they're different and have been disrespected and unheard in life. And that's usually helpful. But basically, Anahi, the answer to your question um, is to create the containers so people could hold diverse views, even awful ones, and make sure you bring in um, the minoritized position. And by the way, sometimes that minoritized position is in the dominant social group. These days, a lot of people who are in the dominant groups are leaving DEI trainings um, because they feel they have no right to speak <clears throat> without all the voices. I, I personally don't think we can go forward, but what do you think, Anahid, about that? Well, actually, Don, I'm going to actually have to draw us to a close today because oh, we're right okay. at one o'clock, so I want to Sorry. do do this by two things one is um i've been flashing up the don's books here Thank so you, you can see the 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 uh, don's website this is how you get a hold of don um and also there's a fabulous course the process work essentials if you want to uh, do some direct training don's also doing that and then lastly i'll leave you with the fact that our next um our next anima cafe is wednesday march 27th and is led by uh, led by Anahid, and it's called um, Navigating Overwhelm in Equity Work. Practical. No, 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 it's not. It's uh, I'm putting it into chat. <laughs> I changed it. It's uh, entitled The Mass Exodus of Chief Diversity Officers. 60% have left in the last uh, year or two. What to do next? Oh, wow. Great topic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, listen, everybody, thank you for uh, joining us. Um, as always, it's rich and always kind of incomplete. We don't quite uh, close with everything, but we hope you got something rich and we'll see you next time. We invite you to, to unmute and say goodbye. Shaquille, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful session. Thank you. Very interesting. Thank you so much for listening today. Our next episode will be available soon.